This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. James chapter 2, we're going to start at verse number 14. I'm going to give a caveat for tonight's message, okay? And I, I need everybody to pay attention to what I'm getting ready to say. The most important thing in all of the Bible, if something was going to be given most importance, all the Bible's important, don't get me wrong, but the most important thing in all of the Bible is how can one be saved? Because there are things in the Bible that have practical implications, how to raise your kids, how to handle your marriage, how to act at work, how to treat other people. How to be saved determines how you live your life on this earth here and what happens to you for all of eternity. That makes that the most important because the how one becomes right with God and how someone becomes saved has eternal ramifications. So let me say, if we were to get that part wrong, nothing else really matters. Does that make sense? Because there's a lot of different religions and world philosophies and stuff like that that help us squeeze the most out of life or how to be good to somebody else or put out positive energy and get positive energy back. But this one thing, the gospel, if we're wrong on this, it alters eternity. Churches that preach a false gospel that's not true literally are sending people to hell. It's a big deal. We as a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church that is serious about the gospel, we take that very, very seriously. And so because of that, we need to make sure that our doctrine that we get from the Bible is 100% gun barrel straight, totally accurate. Because the things that we're handling are eternal, weighty matters that literally determine eternal life, or eternal death. Because of that, what we're going to talk about tonight is super, super important. This passage here, verses 14 through 18, we're going to spend probably three or four weeks here because there's just so much good stuff to get from it. But one of the verses that's in this passage here has been misconstrued and misapplied to say something that it doesn't really say. And again, when we study the Bible, we have to study the Bible in, what's the next word? Context. What does the rest of the Bible say about this verse? Uh, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about this particular subject? And so we want to understand the Bible in context. And so we, to get that, we need to understand what, this, uh, what the Bible says. And so I'm also going to give a second caveat to this. We're going to talk about a lot of false religions in the world. And some of these might hit close to home for you. Either you used to subscribe to this uh, religious belief system. So you might know people that are in this. I have family members in this. The goal of tonight's message is not to give you a bunch of ammunition for your gun belt to go out and blast people tomorrow. This is not information for you to go to work and have an argument. This is not for you to uh, draw out a, a fight at Thanksgiving dinner this year amongst family members. That's not what this is for. The Bible actually says this, that knowledge puffs up. That the smarter you get, the better you think you are than other people. But truth should bring out humility. And we want to be students of truth. We don't want knowledge for the sake of knowledge. We want to know truth so that we can communicate truth to other people. And so tonight's message, 
Again, if you take this as argument points for to post on Facebook or something like this, and let me just tell you this, if I ever find somebody that attends who we call a Baptist church that's fighting with people on the internet, you're going to talk to me about that because that's not how Christians act. If you've got a problem with somebody, you sit down eyeball to eyeball with them and you talk it out. Read Matthew chapter 18. That's how that works. And, and fighting with people and, and posturing on the internet doesn't help anybody at all, so don't do that. And again, I don't have anybody in mind. I don't even look at your Facebook. I don't even look at my Facebook. I'm just saying, if that's you, knock it off. Because people aren't one to Christ because they lost an internet argument. They're one to Christ because someone loved them to the truth. We've got to remember that. So as you take a look at this passage of Scripture, and you said, Pastor, that sounds really serious. Everything that I'm going to talk about tonight is super serious, okay? James chapter 2, we're going to start in verse number uh, 14. Again, we've just taken a look at, uh, the Bible tells us in uh, verse number 10, whosoever uh, keep the law but offends in one point is guilty of all the law, and that God has a law set for us that we have to obey. Verse number 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? That's a rhetorical question that doesn't have an answer right away. If we were to just stop right there, we would have to come to the conclusion that, well, I guess it can't. Because faith and works here are listed in the same verse. And can faith alone save a man? And there's no answer immediately in this verse. So if you just look at that one verse in context, you might walk away from this going, well, I guess faith alone can't save you. That's why context is always king when it comes to the Bible. Every time somebody pulls some verse and says, well, pastor, what do you think about this verse? Well... I don't know the context in which that verse is quoted, so let me reread before it, after it, and other places in the Bible where the same topic is referenced, and then I can tell you what the Bible says. So again, this verse here by itself, standing alone, might say that faith is not enough to save someone. Verse number 15, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you saying to them, depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not the things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Here we have two ideas that seem to be in tension with one another. Maybe even some people have said exclusive from one another. Faith a belief system, a belief structure versus works, the things that we actually do. And so one, if they didn't understand the Bible or even took a couple of these verses out of context, might be able to say or even make an argument that says, faith cannot save you. You need your faith, but you also need your works to be saved. And that leads down a very, very dangerous path of a works-based salvation. Every false religion in the world was birthed from the idea that we must do something to get to the next level. Every single religious system in the world says that you must do something to get to the next level, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Islam, whether it's Confucianism, whether it's whatever your structure is, or New Age spirituality, there's something you have to do so that you can transcend. Basically, you could summarize it this way. Every religious system in the world outside of biblical Christianity means it's up to you and you have to do something. 
And so some might even look at Christianity, and again, just James, a couple of verses out of context, and say, James even says here that you need faith and works to be saved. He would ask the question, can faith alone save a man? And he doesn't even answer because the obvious question, obvious answer must be no. Well, then, then we run into a problematic thinking of, it's now my faith in God plus my works that saves me. Now, are works necessary to be saved? The answer to that is no. Because if works are involved for your salvation, then the obvious next question is, how much? Is it church attendance? Will church attendance save you? Will giving money to the church save you? Will being good to your fellow man save you? And you say, oh yeah, all those would save you. Okay, how much do I have to go to church? 52 times a year, or can I go 50? Well, 50 would probably be okay. What about 45? How about I just show up twice a year, but then I give a really big check when I come twice a year. Is that permissible? Because then we create a floating scale of what works are good enough and what works are not good enough. And then you can ask somebody the question, hey, if you died today, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? And they can say, well, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure. I'm doing my best. That's a problem. You know why? Because the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 5, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to be 100% certain of the fact that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home, 100%. Not 98%, not 99.9%. That's why we sing songs like, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. I know, I have assurance because Jesus Christ is mine and I am his, that my sins are forgiven and heaven is my home. Not think so, hope so, know so. So if works are necessary to be saved, then the question is how much works? When is enough enough? The problem with that is, is that you can never do enough to cover your own sin because works cannot save you. Now, are works necessary to have a real, fruitful, meaningful faith? Absolutely. And that's what James is advocating for here. You want to have a faith that really changes the world? you got to do something with it. It's not enough to just sit back and say, well, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. Yeah, I prayed a prayer one time. James says, what good is that kind of faith? Your faith should change the way that you live your life. Your, life, your, your faith should change the person that you are. Your, per, your faith should change the person that you are from the inside that automatically comes out. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All, thing, all things are become new. And so James isn't making an argument here that works are necessary for salvation. James is making the argument that if you are truly saved according to the Bible, your works are necessary because it's an obvious outflow of a heart that's been changed by God. So, do we need works to be saved? No. But if you've really been saved, your works will automatically come out and will validate your faith. Now, again, we're going to be unpacking this over the next two or three weeks because it's too much to just shove into one night. But this is really important that you and I get this, that our faith should change our lives and change the lives of others. Otherwise, we have a dead faith. 
Well, do you have to do stuff to be saved? No, you do stuff because you're saved. If I was going to summarize that, that this passage, I would say that. You don't have to do stuff to be saved, but because you're saved, you should be doing stuff. So how has a passage like this been misapplied and misappropriated? Many types of churches who would want to call themselves Christians or would want to be lumped in together with Christianity take this passage of Scripture, especially verse number uh, 14 or 15. Let me see here, verse number 14. What if a man has faith but not works? Can faith save him? James is obviously saying no there. And they've taken that verse out of context, again, and divorced it from the rest of the Bible and built an entire belief structure based on that. Now again, I'm getting ready to share with you some things from other false religions. If this upsets you, bothers you in some way, I just ask you, take a deep breath, ask yourself, is this something that I need to hear? Is this what God would have me to hear? And everything that I'm telling you, 100 percent if you're gonna get mad at me please don't get mad at me because i'm not i'm just a messenger everything i'm going to share with you either comes from the mouths of these religions or it comes from the bible so if you get upset with something that's said tonight you're either mad with the belief structure of these other religions or you're mad at the bible you're not mad at your pastor okay just the messenger but sometimes truth can be hard to hear and if tonight's hard to hear uh, then i just encourage you just stick it out hear it and and ask god how you should apply it the primary religion that I see that has misapplied this passage of Scripture and led millions and millions, probably billions of people astray would be Catholicism. Catholicism has what are referred to as their seven sacraments of Catholicism. Here's, according to uh, their catechism, here's what it says, their seven sacraments. Now, as we read through these, I want you to ask yourself these questions as you read through this, not like, okay, that's cute. Ask yourself as you read through these is there something that disagrees with the Bible somewhere? That's really what we need to view. Not a matter of how does this make me feel or what do I think about this or what's my opinion on this? What does the Bible say? And is there anything that contradicts the Bible? There's seven sacraments. They were instituted by Christ and given to the church to administer. They are necessary for salvation. The sacraments are the vehicles of grace which they convey. So in other words, if you want grace, this is how you get grace. They are validly administered by the carrying out of the sign with the proper intention. Not all are equally qualified to administer all the sacraments. The validity of the sacrament is independent of the worthiness of the minister. And three sacraments imprint an indelible character. So according to Catholicism, there are seven sacraments that are necessary for salvation. And if you want to receive the grace of God, you must receive these sacraments. Now, not just anybody can hand out these sacraments. It must be a minister of the Catholic Church that hands this out. So again, this is a statement from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So according to this statement, you have to have the sacraments to be saved. The only person that can give you the sacraments are a minister of the Catholic Church. Therefore, the conclusion that's drawn based on this, the only way to salvation is through the church. Did you catch that? So what are the seven sacraments? First and foremost, baptism. The Eucharist, which is sometimes referred to as mass. The confirmation, confession, anointing of the sick, marriage, and holy orders. Those are the seven sacraments. According to, again, catechism of the Catholic Church, holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life. 
the gateway to life and the spirit and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. So again, we take a look at, just at face value, what do they say? Salvation comes through baptism. Well, according to the Bible, salvation comes through faith and grace and repentance, not through an act which you and I can do or an act which is given by a church somewhere. So again, if baptism is necessary for salvation, and according to the Catholic Church it is, then only they can give baptism. Therefore, they hold 100% of the keys to salvation according to their belief structure. That's problematic. And if you were to talk to any Catholic who really believes Catholic doctrine, you ask them, hey, do you believe that I'm going to heaven because I've confessed Christ as my Savior and been born again? Any Catholic who adheres to Catholic doctrine would say no because you have not been baptized by the Catholic Church yet. Going on, they also say baptism is a source of new life in Christ from which the entire Christian life springs forth. So you're made a new creature in baptism according to them. The Lord himself affirms baptism is necessary for salvation. I'm just going to go ahead and say that is a false statement. Jesus never said we have to be baptized to be saved. By baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin, all personal sins, as well as the punishment for sin. All you have to do is be baptized and everything gets washed away. Again, we have to look at this and say, hey, are there some good things from Catholicism as far as living a moral life or being against abortion or things along those lines? Probably so. Can we call these folks brothers and sisters in Christ? According to their own statements of faith, we have to say we cannot. Now, are you saying that all Catholics aren't saved? I didn't say that. I'm saying that anyone that adheres to Catholic doctrine and believes that baptism comes, baptism is the means of salvation is not a true Christian. According to them, baptism not only purifies from all sins, but also makes the neophyte a new creature, an adopted son of God who's become a partaker with the divine nature, member of Christ and co-heir with him in the temple of the Holy Spirit. With respect to children who have died without baptism, the liturgy of the church invites us to trust God's mercy and to pray for their salvation, allow us to hope that there is a way of salvation for children who have died without baptism. So according to them, if a child dies without being baptized, they're going to go to hell, or maybe God will be merciful. We don't really know. I love the fact that Catholics are mega pro-life. I love that. Man, they're fighting, you know, pro-choice legislation tooth and nail. They're the ones standing outside of clinics and imploring people not to put their kids to death. I love that about them. But their, their motives are different. We as Christians should be pro-life because that's a life that God created. God is sovereign. He's given life. That's a gift from him. Children are heritage of the Lord. We don't have the right to take a life. And once a life begins, it has begun. Life begins at conception. God knows babies in their mother's womb, the Bible tells us. And so we don't want to see life snuffed out because God has a plan, because God is sovereign, because life is life. But Catholicism believes that every aborted baby goes to hell because they haven't had a chance to be baptized yet. And so you look at it and say, okay, we're on the same page when it comes to life, but we're differing on the motives there. And so for them, they're, they're vehemently against abortion because they believe aborted babies go to hell because they have not had the opportunity to be baptized. And again, we would disagree with that. In short, the Catholic Church teaches that salvation is a gift from God. And normative way that we receive the gift is through the seven sacraments, beginning with baptism. Sacraments are sensible signs that Christ instituted to confer grace, i.e. divine life. 
So again, according to them, baptism is the way that you receive God's grace. It's the way that your sins are washed away. It's the way that you become saved. And so it's 100% based on baptism, but then even after that, the keeping of the other seven sacraments. You still have to go to Mass. You still need to go to confession. Uh, You still need to be married in the church. You still need to maintain your church membership so that you can continue to receive Mass. Because in the event that you don't, then you stand in danger of God's judgment. And if you die under God's judgment, then we got to light candles, we got to pray, because you're probably in purgatory, we need to pray that you'll get out of purgatory. Again, all of these are extra-biblical ideas that aren't found in Scripture anywhere. And so if the Bible is the matter of truth and our source of all matters of faith and practice, then these things run contrary to the Bible. And so if you were to ask a Catholic, hey, if you die today, are you sure you're going to heaven? They say, I sure hope so. I'm doing everything that I can. I'm keeping the sacraments the best that I can. I could probably do more, but I could probably pray more. I could probably go to confession more. And again, we don't even have time to unpack the different sacraments. And the idea that, it, that one could go in a booth and tell their sins to another man, and that man could say, your sins be forgiven you. Hey, if you read the New Testament, even the Gospels, the Pharisees knew that only God could forgive sins. Man doesn't have the right to do that. And the fact that you would be able to be forgiven of your sins by repeating a prayer again and again in violation of Jesus saying not to use vain repetitions the way that heathens do. Again, it just doesn't add up biblically. And so there's a problem with that. But again, if you were to ask them why we have to keep these sacraments, because James has told us that faith without works is dead and that faith alone, again, cannot save a man. Whoa, let me stop you there. It doesn't say that they can't save a man. It's an open-ended question with no immediate answer. But then we only need to go to the rest of Scripture to find out, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So according to Paul, as he wrote to the church at Ephesus, hey, we're not saved by our works, we're saved by the grace of God, which is unmerited favor that you didn't do anything to receive And so according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is basically their doctrinal statement, no one can doubt that the sacraments are among the means of attaining righteousness and salvation. And so to be a good Catholic, you need to go to Mass, you need to go to confession, you need to pray, and that's kind of it. And hope for the best. And when you die, we're going to have a funeral for you, and we're going to say things like, may God receive your soul, may you rest in peace, we're going to light candles, we're going to pray, going to give offerings in your name that will hopefully make your time that you have in purgatory shorter in hopes that maybe one day God will receive you. Look, Bible-believing Christians don't say things like, may his soul rest in peace. You're either resting in peace or torment, and there ain't nothing our prayers can do to, to change that. We don't say, may God have mercy on your soul, because God has already determined whether he'll have mercy on your soul or he'll have wrath on your soul. And you and I can't pray a prayer to change any of that. Again, these are things that have been been woven into our vernacular to make us think that these are Christian things. Oh, may he rest in peace. May God receive his soul. May God have mercy on his soul. Those are not Christian statements. Now again, are Catholics our enemies? Absolutely not under any circumstances whatsoever. But they need to know the truth. And you should be having people 
all types of people that don't know Jesus in your home, talking to them about your faith, sharing the gospel with them, inviting them to put their faith and trust in Jesus, inviting them to do some homework to find out why they believe what they believe and what the Bible actually says about that. Please understand, we're not against any person. We're against false religious structures that send people to hell. And we need to be very careful, too, with even so-called Christians who want to do things like interfaith prayer meetings where we're going to have a Catholic priest come up and preach on a Sunday night to help us to understand how our brothers and... No, no, not, not our brothers. Not our brothers. We need to be careful of Christian leaders. Is a, I'll just say his name, Rick Warren, who pastors a Saddleback Church in California called the Pope our Holy Father. What? Christians don't say stuff like that. If you call yourself a pastor, you are woefully misguided when you say things like that. And so, again, we want to make sure that we understand what the Bible teaches, and we need to understand the people that need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus, regardless of your belief structure. And if you want more information, I'd be happy to share it with you. There's a great book that we have back there called Paid in Full that you can get to, to give to people that explains the gospel in really simple terms. If you want to learn more about Catholicism, don't ask your average Catholic. Most of them don't know what they believe or why they believe it. You should buy a Catechism of the Catholic Church. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble. That's where I got my copy. And I went through just with a yellow highlighter and highlighted every problematic statement that I found in it. And there's a lot of yellow ink in it. And so I would encourage you, if you want to know more, do your homework. You should know what you believe and why you believe it from the Bible. And let me just tell you this. Let me help you to be a discerning Christian. Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances whatsoever, believe something just because your pastor told you so. Okay? If I tell you something, I'm going to show you where it's at in the Bible, or I will tell you, that's just my opinion on it. Take it for what you will. But don't ever follow, well, my pastor said this, my pastor said that. That's how cults get started. We need to go back to the source of truth. What does the Bible say? Another, this, this group would be categorized as a cult for sure. And again, we have to define the term cult. What does that mean? It's any group that proclaims to be orthodox but has left the orthodox tenets of the faith. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would definitely fall into that category. According to Je Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, on their website, jw.org, you, the you can ask the question, who goes to heaven? God selects a limited number of faithful Christians who after their death will be resurrected to life in heaven. Once they've been chosen, they must continue to maintain a Christian standard of faith and conduct in order not to be disqualified from receiving their heavenly inheritance. That's on their website. Now, what's not included on their website is the fact that they believe that 144,000 people will go to heaven. They draw that based on a verse used out of context in the book of Revelation that's not even talking about who gets to go to heaven. They believe there's 144,000 people that are going to heaven, and you need to make sure that your name is on that list. What they fail to tell you is that there are millions of Jehovah's Witnesses worldwide. Well, that's problematic, yeah. Because now when we gather together, you're not my brother in Christ, you're my competition. Think about that. And so how do they get to prove that they're worthy? Well, they have timesheets that they keep each week. You might have seen them over on the corner of K.E. Moku. They've got the little standout that they carry with them, all their ma magazines on them, Watchtower magazines. You might have seen them with their, their briefcases walking through your neighborhood and things like that, going door to door. When they get back, they have to fill out a timesheet, how many hours they were out, how many magazines they passed out, and turn that in every week. Because that determines who's above the line and who's below the line. 
So when you see them out there on Kamoku Street, you don't see them like trying to talk to people when they walk by. Hey, how's it going? Hey, hey, you want to come over here now? Hey, you want to talk about Jesus? Hey, you want to talk about? They're just standing there talking to each other. You know why? They don't really care about your soul. They're just running the clock out. If you see them walking through your neighborhood, they're not walking like they're on a mission. They got their briefcase. They're like walking slow, like kicking rocks as they go and stuff like that. Why? They're not in a hurry. They're just punching the clock. Because they believe there's a limited number of people that are going to heaven. And the way that you show that you're worthy of going to heaven is by putting the effort in. And if that's not works-based salvation, I don't know what is. To them, to gain salvation, you must exercise faith in Jesus and demonstrate that faith by obeying his commands. So not only do I have to believe it, I also have to make sure that the stuff that I do backs up what I believe to make myself worthy. And here's what they have to say, again, on their website. The Bible shows that you must have works or acts of obedience to prove that your faith is alive. One of they quote, James chapter 2. However, this does not mean that you can earn your salvation. It is, quote, God's gift based on his undeserved kindness or grace. Now, we would look at that statement and say, I, I think I kind of agree with that. That's kind of fuzzy and ambiguous, but I think I kind of agree with that. And you might be right for saying that. But then we have to look at the rest of their belief structure, and we have to look at the Bible in context. And we say, wait a minute, I don't believe that. And so again, it's another works-based salvation. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. They are a cult. Fact. And the worst part about it is if you drive down Pensacola Street on a Friday afternoon, there's one on Pensacola Street at Pensacola and Canal. Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. And you'll see on a Friday afternoon, they got boxes of magazines that they're loading out to people as they come by. They come by, load up their briefcase, go out on Saturday, Walk down the street, door to door, handing out invitations, not invitations, handing out Watchtower magazines. They'll have movie nights at their, at their venues and stuff like that. It's 100% cult. And you'll also notice that for them, again, the, the whole belief structure began with false teaching. They, they had actually prophesied that Jesus Christ would come back on a certain date, and when he didn't show up, they said, oh, he came back, it was just a spiritual return. You didn't see it happen, but it just happened. And the earth is now Jesus' kingdom, and we are his subjects. That's why the churches are not called churches, they're called kingdom halls, because they're subjects of Jehovah's kingdom. That's why Jehovah's Witnesses will not join the military, they will not salute the flag, they will not stand for the national anthem, because they, their king is Jehovah, and they are part of his nation, not, they don't consider themselves Americans. You say, well, that sounds crazy. It's a cult. That's why. And so again, any religion that says you have to work and put in the effort and put in the shoe leather and put in the sweat to make your way to heaven is in opposition to what the Bible truly teaches. We take a look at the Mormon religion, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, another cult formed by Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, according to legend, was in the forest praying that God would show him what church to join. And God told him that real church has been lost. You need to restore the church. The real word of God has been lost. You need to restore the word of God. And so an angel appeared to him and wrote the Book of Mormon on golden tablets in the middle of the woods. He grabbed the golden tablets and carried them out. How golden tablets 
with the entire Book of Mormon written on them, were able to be carried out by a single man, is not understood to this day. But he carried them out, and they were written in an angelic language. So he had to get a secret decoder hat. I'm not making this up. He looks through the hat as he looks at the golden tablets to translate it. And amazingly enough, he translates it into King James English, despite the fact that it's the late 1800s. Many of the phrases that are used are the same exact phrases that are used in the Bible itself. And then the cover page says, another testament of Jesus Christ. And creates a false religion. And again, you want to do a deep dive on stuff like this, you should do your homework and you should find out that one of the most racist religions ever known to man was the Mormon church. People of color weren't allowed to join the church until like the late 70s. You want to take a look at polygamy, child abuse, child neglect, child child brides? Mormonism has a lot of that nasty stuff in their history. But again, the idea behind Mormonism is that there's a structure that you have to go through to earn salvation. You have to have faith. We would agree with that. You have to have repentance. We would agree with that. You have to have baptism. We would disagree with that. According to the uh, Mormon church, baptism is a symbolic ordinance of cleansing that signifies our rebirth as disciples of Christ and followers of his gospel. Therefore, this baptism must take place in the Mormon church and is the gateway through which we enter the celestial kingdom. That should make your discernment sense begin to tingle. Wait a minute. The only way to heaven is through baptism. The only way through baptism is through the Mormon church. Therefore, the Mormon church is the gateway to heaven. Right. Can you go to heaven outside of the Mormon church? Not according to them. Well, that's problematic because I thought Jesus was the way to heaven. Yeah, Jesus does too. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Not by any church structure that was set up or any religion. And so we look at this and we say, it's wholeheartedly problematic. Next, you're required to receive the Holy Spirit. We then receive the Holy Ghost, which is the fourth fundamental of Christ's gospel, and our sins are forgiven. We would say that that's not a separate thing from being saved. You receive the Holy Spirit when you're saved. Here's the one, again, that is a clear indication that this is a cult. Number five, if you want to go to heaven, you have to endure to the end. Enduring to the end is the fifth fundamental of the gospel. Mind you, this is not the true gospel. This is a false gospel that eventually leads to salvation. Taking the sacrament weekly is an important part of the process, and every time we partake of the bread and the water, we remember Jesus Christ and his atonement, and we remember to keep the commandments of the restored gospel. Spend the balance of your lives trying to live the commandments of the Lord so that he can eventually pardon you and cleanse you. Maybe, hopefully, eventually, one day you might be saved. This is the next part that I, I found so problematic. Obedience to the church and its teachings and the prophet is essential for the Mormon to gain exaltation to the celestial kingdom. That's a fancy word for saying they're heaven. Obedience is the first law of heaven, the cornerstone upon which all righteousness and progression rest. Remember that perdition or hell is reserved for apostates, those who leave the Mormon church and resign their membership in it. There is no salvation apart from total obedience of all the laws and ordinances of the church. That just makes me want to vomit. It hurts my heart. Because you know who hell's reserved for? 
the people that leave this church. Well, man, if you want to scare somebody into staying in your church, that's the way to do it. And you want to find a way to control people, that's a great way to do it. Hey, let's not talk to Billy anymore. Billy left the church and he's on his way to hell right now. He's no longer one of us. He's going to hell because he's left not his faith. He's left the church. And the church is the gateway to heaven. And the only way to heaven is complete obedience to the, all the laws and ordinances of the church. And so again, we would say Mormons are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. They have believed a false religion, a false gospel. And look, if somebody saw an angel in, in the woods that gave them a word, it was not an angel from heaven. Because Paul even says this. It's interesting. Uh, I was at the airport uh, waiting to get on a flight. This is probably three or four months ago. I'm sitting there and, and a kid sits down next to me with a short sleeve white shirt on and, and a name badge. And we're sitting there. He leans over and he goes, you flying for business or pleasure? And I said, pleasure, just get away for a little while. He was like, okay, good. He was like, uh, you ever been to talk about our Lord and Savior? Man. I said, all the time in the world, man. And he's like, good, good. And so he began to say, hey, do you have a church that you go to? I said, I do. What kind of church? Baptist church. Oh, I'm glad to hear that you're a Christian too. I said, are you a Christian? He said, I am. Good to hear. And so we began to talk a little bit and stuff like that. I said, now, now correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I, I heard that you have to be baptized in your church to go to heaven. Well, you have to be baptized in an authorized church to go to heaven. Okay. I said, the church that I go to is an authorized church? He said, well, is it a Mormon church? I said, no. He said, no, it's not authorized. Got it. Are there any churches outside of the Mormon church that is authorized? Well, no, not really. Oh, okay. Got it. And I said, tell me this. The Bible says in the book of Galatians chapter number one that if anybody gives you another gospel, even if it were an angel from heaven, let that man be accursed. And when Paul says be accursed, you mean send him straight to hell. I said, how would you answer that? And he said, well, we wouldn't really say that this is another gospel. It's just a continuation of the gospel. Mm, okay. But it's not a continuation of the gospel. It's actually a different gospel. No, no, if you read the first, I said I read the title page of the Book of Mormon. I never read the whole book, but I've read the title page. And it says another testament of Jesus Christ. He goes, yeah, the word testament just means testimony. I said, no, it doesn't. He goes, what do you mean? I said, the word testament means covenant. And he sits there for a minute and he goes, well, I don't understand. Yeah, you have a new covenant of Jesus Christ. And he goes, well, I don't think that's what it means. Like, look, let's pull out the phone and look it up. What does testament mean? Testament is another word for covenant. And you have a new covenant of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says if anybody comes with another covenant or another gospel, they should be a Christian, should go to hell. How do you rationalize that? He goes, I don't know what to say to that. I don't either. I said, but I would encourage you to do your homework. And he says, what do you do for work? <laughs> I'm a pastor. He was like, oh, okay. Got it. But here's the thing. I wasn't mean. I wasn't unkind. I just challenged him. Hey, study this out, man. Look at what the Bible has to say. And, and I asked him this question. I said, if you didn't have the Book of Mormon, you're stuck on a desert island by yourself. You didn't have the Book of Mormon. You just had the Bible. 66 books. Would you have enough from that to figure out how to be saved and go to heaven? And he sat there for a minute and he goes, no. That's a problem. Because the Word of God is not enough you need an additional book as well. I go, did you really need to do your research on this? 
And again, I feel bad for the kid. He was all of like 19 years old and, you know, was from Colorado and his parents sent him on a mission to Hawaii. He thought it'd be really fun and stuff like that. But I challenge him, do your homework, man. Does this line up with what the Bible says? Not does this line up with what some guy says at the airport. Does it line up with the Bible? And again, because the Bible is the the final authority for everything. Even when it comes to non-Christian religions like Islam, Islam is a system built on faith and good deeds, helping an orphan, being lenient with people, seeking knowledge, having patience, going to the mosque, integrity, ayatul cursi recitation, which is one of their prayers, being able to recite that, reading the Quran, and being good to your parents. If you do all these things, then you can possibly make it to heaven. And if you do other things that are found in the Quran, you can find yourself in different places in heaven with different types of rewards in heaven and things like this. But you got to make sure that you check all the boxes to be able to get there in the first place. Well, all of that is just a works-based system to try to get you to the next level. And again, when I was a teenager, I didn't know any better. I, wasn't, I didn't have any discernment. I'd never been discipled. Nobody ever taught me things from the Bible uh, on an intentional basis. And so I would hear people say things like, well, Allah is just a, a, a different Arab name for God. It's the same God. And I thought, oh, we all believe the same thing. We just call them by different names. But the problem is Allah never had a son. Well, that makes him different from the God of the Bible. That Allah never became a man and dwelt among us. He sent a prophet to tell us what to say. Oh, well, that's different than the actual God of the Bible then. So don't buy into the idea that all of these things are the same because they're not. Even things like Buddhism. Buddhism provides an eightfold path to what they refer to as nirvana. Buddhism has a belief structure that if you live your life, when you die, you get reincarnated as something else. You might come back as a, a bug, or you might come back as a cow, or you might come back as an ant, or you might come back as a, the president of the United States of America. You might come back as something else, but we just don't know why. And the goal is to get to a point in life where you have transcended this earth, transcended this life, and now no longer have to go through the reincarnation process to learn the lessons you needed to learn. And so Buddhism has the idea of right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration is the way that you achieve nirvana. And so it's, again, making sure that you're doing the right thing, you're working hard enough, you're good enough, you're disciplined enough, and then maybe at the end you might make it and get the cookie or maybe you won't. But you won't know until you get there. I don't know how any of these belief structures provide any sense of peace. Because the question is always, did I do enough? And here's the fact of the matter. I'm just going to be straight with you. I'm not good enough to make it on any level. Like, look, I, I can't even stay with a nutrition plan for more than seven days like i can't eat salad for more than one day in a row like am i really going to be able to follow an eight fold path for the rest of my life that will transcend me to a next level i can't do it will i be able to follow you know a 10-step plan to maybe make it to heaven one day i can't do it will i be able to follow all the rules and guidelines that a church sets up that maybe i can make it to heaven no Am I going to be in the top tier, 144,000 of the best people on the planet? Definitely not. So what do I do? I just live with a whole lot of anxiety and keep my fingers crossed and hope for the best. 
And when I die, people will say things like, may God have mercy on his soul. Maybe he made it, maybe he didn't. Man, I don't want to live like that. God doesn't want you to live like that. And so God offers peace. The ability to know for sure that your sins are forgiven. And here's the thing, you don't have to lift a finger. All the hard work has already been done. You don't have to shell anything out because the price has already been paid in full. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff to hopefully get there one day. All the work has been done so that you get to receive that and just live a grateful life that pleases the one who paid the price for you. That's the difference. This past week, uh, I think it's November 1st, I don't know, I read a bunch of stuff on it on the internet. It was Reformation Day. It was a day that they celebrated uh, Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the, uh, the door of the uh, Catholic Church and basically kicked off what is referred to as the Protestant Reformation. Basically, you have a bunch of disgruntled Catholics who began to read the Bible for the first time in their life and decided, hey, we don't want to do this anymore. And so they basically bailed from the Catholic Church and protested and became known as Protestants. Took place in the late 1500s, early 1600s. The, the, the issue was the desire for to be separate from the Catholic Church had already begun before the Protestant Reformation when John Wycliffe began to translate the Bible into English so that people could read it. Then William Tyndale came along and said, every single person on the planet that speaks English should read the New Testament in their own language. And he began to translate the, the Bible, not from the Latin Vulgate that had been corrupted by the Catholic Church, but from the original Greek and Hebrew text into the English language. If you've ever read the Bible in English, thank William Tyndale for that. He died for it. He was put to death by the Catholic Church because it was against the law to translate the Bible into English. Why? Because if you can't read the Bible, all you know is what we tell you. That's how cults get started. So Protestant Reformation kicks off with, with, with uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin. People came out of the Catholic Church, and, and instead of trying to stay in and reform the church, they split off from the Catholic Church. Now, I'm going to give you 90 seconds on church history. Just hang with me for a second, if you will. Please understand, there has always been the church that Jesus started himself. He called 12 men to follow him. One guy was a liar and a thief and a traitor. But those 11 guys that followed him began the church. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 people saved, baptized, added to the church. Thousands of people are being baptized and saved every single day at the church at Jerusalem. Everybody with me so far? That's the church that Jesus started. It always has been. It always will be. There's nothing you can do to stop the church that Jesus started. We call that the church. Somewhere along the lines in about 100 AD or so, drama began to come into the church and there were three major issues that the church dealt with. One of them was church hierarchy where someone wanted power and they said, hey, you're a small church, we're a bigger church, we're gonna take over for you. And they created a structure of important churches and less important churches, and they created a hierarchy that was anti-biblical. But then there were churches that said, hey, we're just with the Bible and with Jesus. We don't subscribe to that and just stuck with the stuff. Then the other heresy that came into the early church was uh, baptismal regeneration. The idea that baptism saves. And there were a group of Christians who said, hey, we believe that salvation is not through Christ alone, it's through the baptism that's provided through the church. But real Christians says, no, you guys are heretics. We don't buy that. 
And then because the belief that baptism saves, they began to baptize baby. Infant baptism was the third major heresy in the early church. And so about 100 AD, there was a split off of the church that Jesus started into a church that was heretical in doctrine. But the church that Jesus started has always been, but you had a split now. About 300 AD, a man by the name of Constantine sees a sign in the, the sky. It's a cross. And he says, God told me that Rome now will be a Christian nation and that the church will be the governor of Rome. And so he looks for a structure that's already in place that he can take over. And it's that hierarchy of churches that's already been created. And he says, I'm the head of this church now. I am the leader of not only Rome, but also the church. And Constantine becomes the first pope of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. But there was always a group of people who says, uh-uh, we're not with you. We don't bow to Rome. You're not no pope. You're not the leader. Jesus Christ is our leader. We are the church. So you have a split off of this. The church that Jesus started continues to go. Throughout a period of time called the Dark Ages, they go out and begin looking for these people who will not bow the knee to the, the Roman Catholic Church, and they begin to put those people to death. Whether they drown them in rivers, whether they push them off cliffs, whatever they do, these people, you either join us or you'll be put to death. They started a time called the Crusades, where they sent people out on horseback to villages. Are you with us or are you against us? If you're against us, you're put to death. They ransacked their, their homes and began looking for copies of the Bible. If they found copies of the Bible, it was immediately punishable by death. You're not allowed to have it. Who did this? The Roman Catholic Church. So sometimes when people say things like, well, the church killed people that didn't agree with them. That wasn't the church that Jesus started. Don't misunderstand. And when we read history books, we need to understand that many of these history books were not written by people who love Bible-believing Christians. They're written by enemies of true biblical Christians, and they ascribe things to, quote, the church that were not the church that Jesus started. It was a false church. And so then you get down to about the 1600s where the Protestant Reformation happens, and you have the church that Jesus started, the Catholic church, and then there's another split off the Catholic church, these people that don't want to be Catholics anymore. That begins the Protestant Reformation. Now, we as Bible-believing Christians say we stand with Jesus and the church that he started. We never got involved in a corrupt group that we had to come out of. We just always been with Jesus and we always been with the Bible. And those types of Christians have been called a lot of different names throughout all of church history. So when people say things like, is your church a Protestant church? We would say to that, we're not a Protestant church, we're just a Bible-believing Christian church. Because we didn't protest the church at Rome. We never wanted to be a part of that. We never were a part of that. We're part of the people who gave their life for the faith. You're going to read something. Fox's Book of Martyrs is an outstanding book to read. It reads about all the people who've given their life for the faith over church history. So for us, is it a good thing that Reformation Day happened? Sure, it's a good day that there's less Catholics. But we aren't Protestants. We're just Bible-believing Christians that have always stood for the Bible. That's who we are. We didn't come out of something. And oftentimes when you find these churches that are Protestant churches, they carry over a lot of Catholic imagery. For example, Methodists, which are actually a branch off, you trace it all the way back, branch off of Catholicism. 
A lot of times their ministers will wear white robes with crosses on it and things like that. Have a lot of stained glass, maybe some candles up front. You take uh, churches that are maybe Lutheran churches. They'll come through in the middle with the incense and things like that. They came out of Catholicism, but they didn't come out far enough. But then there's people who just, the Bible is the book. If it says it, we do it. This is what we do. We don't care about church tradition. We don't care what happened in whatever year. We don't care about councils. We don't care about creeds. We just care about Jesus and the Bible. That's kind of where we land. Now, the Protestant Reformation brought good stuff. They came up with what are referred to as the five solas. And sola is, is in Latin. It means only. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solo Christo, Christ alone. Solo Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. We look at those and you say, yeah, we believe that. But this was groundbreaking for a bunch of Catholic priests who realized they weren't in the right church any longer. And so the Protestant Reformation kicked off with the five solas. But I think all of the other Bible-believing Christians were kind of like, yeah, what have you guys been doing for the last 500 years? So this wouldn't be new to any of us. We would say, yeah, absolutely, why? Not because somebody came out with a creed or a bunch of guys had a meeting where they came up with the five solas that we're gonna follow, but because the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and we find that out by the scriptures alone. That's really helpful to us. So when it comes down to how, how we, are we saved, we saw we're not saved by our works. What can we do? The only thing that you can bring to your salvation is your sin and your repentance. Here's all God wants from you. He wants you to admit, I've broken God's law. I am a sinner. I know that I'm wrong, and I want to change. That's it. Is it really that simple? It is. So is it just praying a prayer? Nope. has nothing to do with the prayer. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Believe in your heart, confess it with your mouth. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you believe that by trusting in him alone, you can be saved and go to heaven? Are you willing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus? If the answer to those is yes, you can be saved. Do I need to be baptized? You should, but you don't have to be. Do I have to show up to church every week? You'll be helped by it, but you don't have to. Do I need to follow all the rules of the Bible? If you want to be blessed and do things God's way, definitely. But that has nothing to do with whether or not you go to heaven or not because the price has already been paid in full by Christ himself. The only thing that you bring to the table is your sin and your repentance. So can real faith save alone? Absolutely. No doubt about it. So when James asks the open-ended question, can faith alone save? The answer that he was thinking in his mind was absolutely Yes. Now, will real faith produce real works? Absolutely yes. Look, if you're really saved, things begin to change. Somebody might have prayed a prayer one time and they were really serious about it. They cried a lot. But the proof is in the pudding. Is their life different next week? Is their life different 90 days from now? Is their life different six months from now? Are they a changed person three years from now to be more like Christ? That's really the determining factor because real faith always produces real works. Because if faith without works, according to James, is dead. Final thought. This is it. The moment 
that you add anything to salvation, it's no longer salvation. That's it. I have, um, I have my pen. It's a nice pen. It's a navy blue pen. Navy because I once served in the world's finest navy. Um, it's, it's a ballpoint. It's a super smooth. My wife says it has bleedy ink. I don't think bleedy is a word, but you know what she means by that, right? It's a gift. It's, 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 it's nice. If I were to say, I'm going to give you this as a gift, what do you have to do to get it? Somebody help me. Take it. Receive it. Stand up. Get it. That's how gifts work. Now imagine I say to this, I'm going to give you a gift, and you come up to receive it. And I said, ah, before you take it, I want you to come by every Saturday and wash my car. And the first Saturday that you forget, you've got to turn it back in. Is that a gift? Nope. There's conditions. There's strings attached. I want to give you this pen, but you've got to continue coming to church. Is it a gift? Nope. I'm going to give you this pen, but you have to be baptized on December 2nd when we have a baptism service. Is it a gift? Nope. It's, we're exchanging works for a payment. The moment that you say you've got to add anything to salvation, it's no longer salvation. Well, I'm going to do my part and God will do his part. The only thing you have to do for your part, repent of your sin and have faith in Jesus. That's it. I want to live a really good life. You should want to, but it has nothing to do with whether or not you're saved. Well, I want to come to church more, and you should, but that has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to be saved. I want to tell other people about Jesus, and you should, but it has nothing to do with whether or not you're saved. The only thing that determines whether or not you're saved is who's paying for your sin, you or Jesus. And the Bible makes it really clear. It's either works or it's grace. Either you're working for it or God gives it to you because you don't deserve it. And the moment that it becomes works, it's no longer grace. And the moment that it becomes grace, it's no longer works. The two are opposites of one another. So the idea that faith and works come together to make salvation just not a biblical idea. But the idea that you and I would be saved by the grace of God and our life would be supernaturally changed by the Spirit of God, oh, all day long. We'll be unpacking that over the next couple weeks. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.